Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today my guests are George Chastain and Lee Brockington. They're both with Hobcall Barony and the Bell Baruch Foundation. George is the executive director and Lee is the senior interpreter of the property. We're going to discuss Bernard Baruch, his daughter Belle, and the role that both of them have played in the preservation and conservation of a wonderful historical and environmental resource for the people of South Carolina. I'll have that conversation with George and Lee, but first, your NPR news break. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today, my guests are George Chastain, who is executive director of Hobcall Barony, and Lee Brockington, who is senior interpreter of the property. And Lee is a longtime friend. I've known George too, but Lee is a longtime friend. And at one point, she was here at Historic Columbia Foundation. So, both of you, welcome to the journal. And we're here because of a news story I picked up, and it was a wonderful headline. The Bell W. Baruch Foundation recovers stolen artwork missing 13 years. So, George, let's have the story. <laughs> well, it, it, it is. It was a story a long time in the making. It was 13 years since the art disappeared. We uh, had a wonderful collection and items from the collection that came from Bell Baruch, from, uh, from the Baruch family, went missing back in 2003. Uh, some of those pieces were missing for over 13 years. And I got an interesting call one day from, uh, from John Ivey with Ivey Auctions up in Lawrence that uh, he felt like he had some pieces that may belong to the foundation that had been listed as missing art, particularly a painting by Munnings of Belle Baruch and her horse, Surion. These paintings went missing 13 years ago. Was the FBI involved? From day one, we, um, when we reported the paintings missing, um, and all the other personal items that were missing. We involved, the, of course, the Georgetown County Sheriff's Department since we are located there in Georgetown. And they very quickly realized this, the value of the art that was missing uh, required a little bit more investigation. So they called in the FBI, and we began to work with the FBI uh, immediately. And, and what was the value of those paintings? We think that the items that, that went missing were valued in excess of $1 million. Okay. Um, there have been some, some other estimates, and you know how art, it all depends on the condition. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we're still working on that, but we think it's, it's certainly in excess of a million dollars. And then all of a sudden, after all these years, there, there appeared a, a dealer in, in Lawrence. And at least he was aware of the fact that they had been stolen, right? Or suspected they might have been. He, he was aware. He was aware. These items were, were identified and identifiable. They're one of a kind. And they were put out on the National Lost Art Registries and the International Lost Art Registries. So any reputable firm is going to check those registries before they put art out for sale. And uh, it had come to him through an estate, and uh, that was the first thing he did, I guess, was to check those registries to make sure that they were pieces that he could actually put out for sale. Once he did that and they were identified as belonging to uh, the Baruch Foundation. Um, they were returned to you. The, the estate lost them, right, it, um, it, it wasn't a family estate. Uh, it was an individual who had passed away, and these items were in the estate. The auction house identified the items, and then they reached back out to the family uh, after they had made contact with us. And the family was very, uh, very cooperative. They were really, they were surprised. I really believe they were surprised. I did talk to the sister, and uh, she had no idea what they had. This sounds like a great European mystery story, you know. Mm-hmm. The well, it was a mystery to us for 13 years. Um, well, in European, yes, because one of the examples we often gave when we talked about the loss of our art was that the Mona Lisa had been stolen, mm-hmm. but it had returned to the Louvre. And, and what, I think we always felt like it would return. Yeah, and of course the scream was stolen. Yes, absolutely. Much. So I think the, the thought, too, that when art is stolen, it's not stolen from any individual owner. It's stolen from the community. It's stolen from the thousands of people that might have come and visited Hobcall. But the story of the art itself, you know, we talk about the value and the resale value, but Sir Alfred J. Munnings, three portraits of Belle Baruch on Suriant, who was 
a horse that was at the top of his game in the 1920s and 30s. And many of the listeners know that Suriant had defeated Hitler's military officers on their horses, Mussolini's military officers, and especially in the 30s, Belle Baruch at the top of her game, an Olympic-level rider. And yet as a woman, as an American woman, as an American woman with a Jewish last name, imagine that notoriety and imagine that danger and in some ways intrigue. But Sir Alfred J. Munnings painted not one, not two, but three portraits of Suriant. And in the corner of one of the portraits he wrote, he painted with his brush, the most charming horse I ever painted. He stood alone like this whilst the groom kept away the flies. Outstanding portraits by Munnings, and we are thrilled to have them back and have them being conserved. They all came from the Bell Baruch Foundation. She, she inherited those. Some she purchased to sell, some inherited from her dad. Uh, Bernard Baruch. She commissioned the Munnings, the okay. Audubon she purchased for her um, use at Belfield, her home at Hobcaw Barony. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I th- let's let's just stop a minute and talk about the Baruch family. Those of us in this room are very familiar with Bernard Baruch, South Carolina boy, young Jewish fellow, makes good, moves to New York, makes a fortune, becomes a, an economic advisor to all presidents from Woodrow Wilson to. John F. Kennedy, uh, but he never forgot his South Carolina roots, and he began coming back here, what, in the 20s or the 30s? Much earlier. Actually, it was 1905, and um, born in Camden, Camden, South Carolina, and only 10 when he moved to New York City. And Bernard Baruch was certainly a study in contrast. His father was an immigrant in 1855 to South Carolina. His mother, a blue blood, a member of the Wolf family of Fairfield County. And so Southern, but the um, son of an immigrant, the son of a blue blood, but at age 10 moves to New York, and then as a young adult, makes a fortune on Wall Street. But Dr. George Rogers, the history of Georgetown County, reminds us that Bernard Baruch was the very first northerner to purchase property in the South Carolina Lowcountry region of Georgetown, 1905, the very first, and then followed quickly by many other northerners looking for winter retreats and particularly duck hunting retreats. It's called Hobcaw Barony, which goes back to the 17th century and baronies were given to friends of the Lord's proprietors, numbering in the thousands of acres. And Hobcaw actually, as it was finally assembled by Baruch, was really larger than the original barony, was it not? It is. It's uh, what we own today that came from the Baruch family that Mr. Baruch had had put together between 1905 and 1907 is over 16,000 acres. Mm -hmm. The original land grant to Lord Carteret Mm -hmm. uh, actually read as 12,000 acres, English measure. Well, that, that would have been because it was done in 6,000-acre chunks, mm-hmm. uh, whether you were a cacique or a landgrave. Caciques got 6,000 acres and landgraves got 12,000 acres. So you've got 16,000 acres. You've got, you got, got, got a little bit more. Uh, but the fact that he chose to come back home and invest in the low country, and you mentioned the duck hunting. People may think about it today in the Atlantic Flyway, but at the turn of the last century, South Carolina became a duck hunting mecca. Uh, And really, it almost began with Baruch. I've seen the photographs of the boats in Georgetown Harbor where the hunters are there and the ducks are piled up chest high around all of them. What Mr. Baruch used to call his 100 duck days. His Uh, 100 duck days. A morning hunt, um, normally by by 11 o'clock, they had killed so many ducks in their hunts that uh, the hunt would be ended by that time and the the hunting party would move back to the house at that point, uh, go back for other activities for the afternoon. When when did the the actual house that's there at Hobcaw Barony, when was that built? The house that you see today on the bluff overlooking Winyah Bay was rebuilt in 1930 due to a fire in 29. Think about what a bad year 1929 was to a financier. And um, in 1929, that previous house burned, but even it had been a home built following the American Civil War. And the house before that, as early as 1729, a house on that bluff, which um, confirms what you've always said about how valuable bluffs are in the low country, that high ground 
We know through archaeology done by the South Carolina Institute of Archaeology and Anthropology that it was not only a slave village at one time, but also an Indian trading post. And then again, by 1729, a plantation. And then shortly after the Civil War, bought by the Donaldson family, the lower half of the barony. And they continued to plant rice. A lot of people don't realize that rice did not end with the Civil War, but instead um, the last commercial crop was 1911 in Georgetown County. And of course, by 1911, those wholesale gunners, those market hunters that you mm. mentioned, were exporting plantation duck to New York hotels and Washington restaurants. And when you talk about the Atlantic Flyway, it is important to remember that so many Northerners who were hunting were hunting around Delaware Bay and might come down to Chesapeake Bay. But it was people like the Kaminsky's in Georgetown that teased their cousins, the Baruchs, and said, why are you wasting your time over the Delaware and over the Chesapeake? Come to where the ducks spend the winter. Hundreds of thousands of ducks that overwintered in South Carolina. And until federal game limits in 1918, what George just said, 100 duck days, was a self-imposed limit, self-imposed average, 100 ducks a day. And it was really a, a, a result of the rice culture mm-hmm. that had been there in the 1800s that produced such tremendous habitat that was available for the ducks uh, and wading, wading birds as well this habitat that really came from a commercial agricultural production uh, through the rice era. And and once conservation began, and, and really Baruch and some of these other wealthy northern landowners really began uh, conservation methods, but they also began planting material to attract the ducks in the old, once the rice was no longer there. I mean, they planted other items to Right. Absolutely. These these northern industrialists that came to South Carolina and purchased these plantations as hunting tracks kept those water control structures and those dikes in place and continued to manage those impoundments. But now they were not managing for rice. They were managing for ducks mm-hmm. and uh, producing the food crops even up until today uh, still continued to manage those areas for waterfowl. And, of course, they could get to South Carolina two ways. They could come by train. And eventually, didn't Baruch have a siding run into Hobcall? Not so much that, but he did. There was a spur that ran off the main line north and south that came to Georgetown. And the train station was located about where today's steel mill has been located. But he had two private rail cars. That's what you're remembering, two private rail cars. And he could send word to his friends in Washington, even without his presence, that the rail cars would come through on Friday. And we'd love to have you come down to Hobcall. So they did come by train. And, of course, you know how else they arrived. They could come by boat to Georgetown. People find it hard to believe that major steamship lines came into Georgetown until well after World War I. Mm -hmm. The Clyde Line was one of the The best known. Yeah, English. Mm -hmm. English, And if they didn't need to come commercial, they could also come in their own yachts, Walter, and tie up at the pier right there at Hobcaw House, the same same location where we have a pier today and and offer boat trips for the public. The, The whole story of the Baruch family is is interesting. How did it end up in the present situation? Bernard Baruch lived into the 1960s, and then the place was inherited by his daughter, Belle. It's a little more complicated story. Well, it that's is. well, that's what we're, we're here to learn about, George. It is. It is. Belle Baruch, when she turned 21, Mr. Baruch had three children. Belle was the oldest. When she turned 21 in 1920, Mr. Baruch gave her her inheritance. He actually made her a millionaire in 1920. She took her inheritance, moved to France. Uh, That's where she really began riding and where she developed her passion for horses. And then in 1936, her father had been encouraging Belle to come back to the United States. He had served on the Paris Peace Conference after World War I. He saw Hitler come to power. He saw some of the things going on in Europe and felt like there was going to be another war. And he asked Belle to come back to the United States And as a way to entice her to come back, he uh, offered her the chance to come and manage Hobco Barony. She turned him down, uh, refused. She did not want to be her father's hostess on the plantation. So uh, she turned him down, but she made an agreement with her father. If he would begin to sell the property to her, then she would come back. And she did, in 1936, established her home there at the Belfield House on Hobco Barony, purchased the northern third of the property from her father, 
And then by the mid-1950s, Belle became the sole owner. She had purchased the entire plantation from her father. From her dad, okay. All right. So it wasn't a question of inheritance. She bought it. She bought it. Although he continued to use it, correct, or not? He did. He did. Um, he she he bought it originally in um, 1905 until 1907 began making purchases and many people are interested in the purchase price it averaged three dollars and fifteen cents an acre and actually that was a lot of mo- back then rice land I have seen go for less than fifty cents an acre abandoned oh. rice fields. When I first heard that figure, you know, as a Colombian native, the first thing I thought of was that Yankee swindler, $3.15 an acre. But it was. It was the going rate of real estate. And, you know, almost half of it was what others would say underwater. Mm-hmm. Like you said, not only the rice lands, but also the salt marsh. Mm-hmm. And salt marsh was considered um, of no value even as late as the 1970s. But Bernard Baruch's sale to Bell and then her purchase um, of the first one-third and then her immediate management of the property um, gave her real good insight in the 1930s into the diversity that was there. And it was that diversity that first attracted Bernard Baruch to the property in 1905 because of the variety of things to hunt, not just ducks, but deer and turkey, upland birds, as well as the water birds. So that diversity today is what is so interesting as well. Well, how did she begin to manage the property? What did she do differently? She, she's not hunting ducks, is she? She continued to hunt ducks. She continued to manage some of the some of the wetlands for waterfowl. Uh, she began to manage the wildlife, and she really began the first forestry on the property. Mr. Brooke had harvested some timber as part of the war effort, but uh, had not really practiced scientific forestry. Uh, Bell became interested in forestry. Uh, it was still a fairly new profession. Here's uh, the first forester was hired in South Carolina by the state in 1928, I believe. So this was still a pretty young profession. And uh, she saw the, uh, the advantages of conservation and management and began to apply some of those scientific principles to the management of her forest. She began to actively manage the forest, manage the wildlife, and that was really the interest that I think sparked her to create the foundation. And it was Bell Baruch that created the foundation that owns the property today. When she passed away, she left the property in a trust. And the trust had a mission to do research with the colleges and universities in South Carolina. And she specifically said in her mission that we do research in forestry and marine biology. And I think that's really one of the most amazing things about her. She saw the practical implications of scientific land management and forestry and wildlife. But she also mentioned marine biology. And that that point there was not even a program in marine biology in the state of South Carolina. Well and of course the Baruch Institute here at the University uh, for many years John Dean, John Mark Dean, Mm -hmm. probably one of the most famous marine biologists in the literally in the world. I mean he's talked about I mean his love for Hobcaw is just Mm -hmm. Uh, amazing. And of course, the first institute director, Dr. John Vernberg, yes. who coordinated the institute for so many years and is back living in Columbia now, Dr. Vernberg's vision. And often Dr. Vernberg has referred to Bell as the mother of marine science in South Carolina mm-hmm. because of what George just said, mm-hmm. that first awareness that it was important and important enough not only to study but to lead and the USC Baruch Institute has certainly been a worldwide leader in research and education mm-hmm. in those interdisciplinary fields of marine science. Now, the Baruch Institute facilities, they're on the barony, but they're separate from the house. I mean, they're two, they're two different entrances, right? We do have the one entrance off US 17. Mm-hmm. That's uh, our public entrance for visitors and for our researchers. And then on the property, we do host the two Baruch Institutes. The Baruch Institute with the University of South Carolina, that is the lead institute in marine biology research at Hobco Barony, and the Clemson University Research Institute, the Baruch Institute that is our lead partner in doing research in forestry and wildlife management. Uh, both of those universities have had a presence on the property now for nearly 50 years. Gosh. Gosh. And, of course, full-time staff at both of those institutes, I think very often um, 
nationally, people understand that we are privately owned property by, owned by the Bell Baruch Foundation. South Carolinians, if they grew up Gamecock fans, they assumed USC owned the property. If they grew up Tiger fans, bless their hearts, they assumed <laughs> that Clemson owned the property. But it's especially because of the research and the awareness of the research laboratories, again, with full-time staff research faculty and technicians that live in the community of Georgetown County and then work every day on the property. And then there are other colleges and universities also that have a, a major presence on the property, right, George? We do have a growing relationship with Coastal Carolina University. They're, that university has seen phenomenal growth in the last decade. Their marine biology program, but also some programs in the uh, cultural side that are doing work on the property. We do work with Francis Marion, um, the College of Charleston, uh, those schools that are in our region of the state are the ones that are probably more active at this point. But just in the last five years, I was just looking back through the records a couple of weeks ago, and just in the last five years, we've had over 50 different universities and organizations conducting research on Hopco Barony. Well, the facilities there, and you do have facilities, people have held retreats. Uh, I can remember, Lee, there was a wonderful one there that Charles Joyner put together that you were heavily involved with. Well, George Terry um, at the University of South Carolina and Dr. Joyner brought a national folk life conference to us. And there in the University of South Carolina's Kimball Lodge with dormitories and cottages, not only available for scientists and researchers um, during their um, busiest months of the season, but also available to educators. And the Folk Life Conference was exceptional. I think that it was at that conference that George McDaniel, you know, the Director Emeritus at Drayton Hall, who um, first came through Friendfield Village. And I was actually apologizing that out of the seven structures still standing in the village that only four of them were from the 19th century, that some had actually been constructed in the early 20th century. And George McDaniel said, oh, don't apologize. You have the opportunity at Hobcaw Barony to show the change over time from emancipation to independence, um, well, or as employment. And that has been real important to us at Hobcaw, change over time, whether we're talking environmentally, tens of thousands of years, or if we're talking culturally. But the Folk Life Conference made us aware that we had some resources that might not be available to other historians. Well, let's talk about Friendfield Village for a minute. Well, I think I think with the publication of Dr. Joyner's book in 1984, Down by the Riverside, um, we were very fortunate that immediately Friendfield Village was known to an audience that read and enjoyed books about the Low Country, but especially to an audience of scholars. That book has been printed and reprinted many times and heavily features Friendfield Village, and especially Down by the Riverside is more than just slavery as studied as a political entity, a moral issue, an economic issue. It was the daily lives, um, their religion, um, the culinary history, and also the family unit. And Dr. Joyner has said many times, as well as other historians, including you, that the preservation of the Gullah culture in many ways is because of this single-family housing in villages, these small communities. And, um, and the subtitle is A Slave Community on the Waccamaw Neck, of that book down by the riverside. And so Friendfield is on the Hobcaw Barony property. And as you said, some of the structures from 19th century, how many structures are there in Friendfield? Well, Friendfield was one of those rice plantations that make, makes up Hobcaw Barony. There are three structures that were original slave cabins from the 1840s, we believe right around 1840, that still remain in the village. There are two houses, as Lee mentioned, that were built probably in the 1920s that replaced slave cabins but were used by the African Americans that were still living on the, on the plantation. Then there's also the beautiful church that we have, and I call it beautiful. It, it, may be, it may be small, but it is truly a unique feature. It was built in the 1890s, so it is post-slavery, replaced a small chapel, uh, praise chapel, maybe that was there on that site, and then redone and expanded in 1905 by Mr. Baruch after he bought the property. And then there's the great little doctor's office that really started out in another location on the property near Belfield as a one-room schoolhouse for the white children on the property. 
It was later moved after 36, 1936, when the bridges to Georgetown opened up and children could begin to go into Georgetown for school. It was moved to the uh, Friendfield Village and became the doctor's office, where Mr. Baruch would have a doctor from Georgetown come over once a week and treat the African Americans that were still living on the property. There's a, um, there's a great oral history story that, um, from Minnie Kennedy about the uh, doctor's office there. Minnie Kennedy was an African-American that was born and raised on Hobcaw Barony. And Minnie used to, in one of her oral histories, she says that uh, you can only get sick on Hobcaw on Wednesdays because the doctor only came on Wednesdays. <laughs> and and Mose Jenkins, um, a former resident, Mose Jenkins, recounted the story at the doctor's office where he was very sick as a child. His parents um, brought him to Dr. Assey there at the doctor's office. And Dr. Assey of Georgetown, who came over regularly, could not do anything for young Mose. He had scarlet fever. And so Mr. Baruch paid, as he often did, for him to be transported to the closest hospital. Now think about Hobcaw Barony between Pauley's Island and Georgetown. And the year was 1947. The closest hospital was McLeod Infirmary in Florence, South Carolina. And as Mose Jenkins stood and told a group of third graders about how he um, had to be transported because of scarlet fever, how his family began to build a coffin, one third grader tugged on his sleeve and said, did you live? Mose Jenkins was such a powerful storyteller, an African-American who told of him living, yes, recovering, getting well at McLeod and returning to the village. Mr. Baruch made a big difference in the lives of his employees, both black and white, and some of us speculate that the whole reason he rebuilt in 1930, even though wildlife was diminishing, was because he did have so many people on the payroll. And as of 1930, it was important to him to continue to provide support for that community on this 20th century plantation. Well, you mentioned uh, Dr. McLeod and his, his infirmary in uh, Florence. He had a long connection with both Mr. Baruch and with Mr. Yawkey. And you may be interested to know that his grandson here in Columbia has all of his family papers which may give you some insight to further interpretation. And I believe the chapel that you're talking about that replaced an earlier chapel, just before the Civil War, the Episcopal Church in South Carolina, and particularly the planters in Georgetown County, began to build small chapels on their, chapels. on their plantations mm -hmm. for worship. I mean, people have, find it hard to believe, but in 1860, there were only about a dozen more white Episcopalians than there were black Episcopalians. Not, that figure's mm -hmm. a little bit loose, but that's close. It was one of the few denominations where, uh, for example, Baptists were congregations like here in Columbia. Remember, Lee, right. First, First Baptist Church was overwhelmingly African-American. Mm -hmm. And and even at All Saints Parish, you know, you're talking about Reverend Alexander Glenny, who yeah. especially wanted to reach out to the slave population, and they were communicants. They mm -hmm. were members. And Reverend Alexander Glenny did establish 13 slave chapels on the Waccamaw Neck with the cooperation of those plantation owners. And we believe that it was at Friendfield also that um, not only during Reverend Alexander Glenny's leadership, but also the owner of the plantation at that time was a woman, Elizabeth Alston Blythe. And in her papers, so well preserved with um, Robert F.W. Alston's papers, Easterby had done so much good work collecting them, we see references over and over to Elizabeth Blythe Alston referring to the care and treatment of her slaves and their religious education. Mm -hmm. And so we, um, we remember Reverend Alexander Glenny. Um, I know in the South Carolina Historical Society there's been a recent donation of the ring that Reverend Glenny used when he married slave couples um, before emancipation. So his work at All Saints Parish is um, well documented and important. Well, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. I'm talking with George Jastain and Lee Brockington from Hobcall Barony owned and operated by the Bell Baruch Foundation. Well, you know, this is just, you know, again, an incredible part of the story associated with Hobcaw. And Mr. Glennie, by the way, did continue his work with the freed population after the Civil War, uh, funded in part by the National 
Episcopal Church. If I co- if I go to Hobcall Barony, first of all, I'm I'm going to I'm going to check your website, which is wonderful. But I can just drive in. How much am I got to pay to get in? Well, to visit the Hobcall Barony Discovery Center, our small museum at the front gate, um, it's absolutely free, and we are open every day but Sunday. The Discovery Center is that museum, and we recently reopened in 2009 with um, additional square footage and all new exhibits. So we are able to tell the story of our ecology, of our history, and also interactive exhibits and programs all the time that range from free to small fee and then a greater fee, but a diversity of programming for ages and for interest. But Hobcob Barony Discovery Center, right there at the front gate, providing information. You mentioned that Carolina grads think that it's a USC project and Clemson grads think that it's a Clemson project, but you are, you're open to the public, but you're a private entity. George? That's correct. Uh, that That's one of the things that makes us unique, I think, is that we are a private entity. We're owned by the trust. The Baruch Foundation uh, was created by Belle Baruch through her will, and we do have a 12-member board of trustees that oversees the operations and management of the, uh, of the foundation and of the property. We have a mission to conserve Hopco Barony for research with the schools and colleges, both in the history and culture of the of the area, and for the ecological research. So it is a unique mission, and it's a unique mix of being able to mix the ecology and the history, and talk about with people that interaction between man and the environment is something that's kind of unique to what we do. I want to get into that in a minute, but if my memory serves me, there is a Baruch descendant, not Bells, but there is a Baruch family member on the board still, is there not? There is. Uh, there is. Mr. Baruch, Bernard Baruch, had three children. Bell was the oldest, uh, his son, Junior, the middle child, and then Renee was the youngest. Renee did marry. Uh, Baruch, uh, Junior, was married as well, but there were no grandchildren, so there were no heirs after Bernard Baruch's first three children. There is a great-nephew of Bernard Baruch, though, Albert Baruch Mercer, who serves on our Board of Trustees. He's a heart surgeon from Owensboro, Kentucky, uh, but he does serve and gives, gives us a little family connection to the Baruch family again. Bert has been very supportive of our work. His father was Hartwig, the oldest of the four Baruch brothers. Hartwig was the brother who thought he wanted to be an actor. And when he told his mother, his mother thought, oh, no, and went to young Bernard, the younger brother, who had just purchased his seat on the New York Stock Exchange. And Mrs. Baruch, Bernard's mother, said, don't you want to give Hardy your seat on the New York Stock Exchange? Teach him how to be a financier. And Bernard Baruch said, yes, mother. All four brothers eventually um, had a seat on the stock exchange, were involved in the brokerage business, despite their personal interest. But Hartwig Baruch's grandson is on our board, great nephew of Bernard Baruch. Well, I, I just think that that's, you know, interesting that there is still a family connection, even if it is, as they would say in genealogical organizations, collaterally descended, <laughs> not, mm-hmm. Not, mm-hmm. not direct descent. Part of that great cousinage that oh, is South Carolina. Absolutely. Vast and interconnected, and be careful what you say. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Well, let's let's talk about George. You were you were saying before I digress to get into, into into that about the ongoing work, and I'm interested, Lee, in particular about the recent archaeological work you've had done on the site. We um, we've been always been interested in archaeology. Dr. Leland Ferguson has been very supportive of our finds there. Mr. Jim Mickey, when he was with Coastal Carolina University, um, came to us about 1990 and did a search for San Miguel de Gual. You know that the Spanish in 1526 created a settlement somewhere um, in the vicinity of the Carolina coast or the Georgia coast, and many historians have felt that it might have been at Hobcob Barony. Jim Mickey looked in 1991 um, and did not find any evidence of that 1526 attempted, the first attempted European settlement. But I love Jim Mickey's words in that he said, well, no one has found any evidence elsewhere 
to prove that it was not hobgob barony, but Dr. Chester DePratter of the South Carolina Institute for Archaeology and Anthropology has also done a great deal of research at Hobcaw on shell midden, spending a great deal of time with the oysters and the clams, studying the Native American campsites. Um, and he believes, actually, that the 1526 settlement that only lasted from August to October, think about beginning something in South Carolina in August, but that settlement may be lost to the ages or, as Dr. DePrater says, perhaps is somewhere along the Georgia coast, as best he can determine. The folks at, at Buford, and particularly at the Santa Elena Historical Society, have put their oar in for maybe San Miguel was actually here in along Port Royal Sound, which could make sense. Now, you say there's not archaeological evidence of where that the site was, but it seems to me I remember reading the, the diaries, the journals of DeSoto's men going through. They found European artifacts on their journey through South Carolina. And it is, there's no doubt that the Spanish were in South Carolina. I think the recent discovery and Dr. DePrater's work at Paris Island and the discovery of Fort San Marcos is amazing and interesting. And so that's, that's the beauty of archaeology. We continue to solve mysteries. And even our recent archaeology that we've been able to do with Dr. Karen Smith has revealed some unusual things. And, um, and George and Karen have been working closely in discovering those artifacts and being able to confirm something especially wonderful. Well, we were really interested in looking at the, the bluff. Uh, and Dr. Smith was very interested in looking at the bluff over Winyaw Bay where the Hopco House is located. It's a high bluff. First floor of Hopco House is 25 feet above sea level. Um, that's like a mountain in Georgetown on Winyaw Bay. So it is one of the highest points immediately uh, facing the water. So it's likely it would be a site for occupation mm-hmm. uh, and previous occupation. Dr. Smith was able to do some, some archaeological test digs across the, the area around Hobcaw House and uh, determined that she could find the site of the house it burned in 1929, uh, just north of the house site where Hobcaw House is today. They have determined they think they have a house site from the 1700s that uh, would be a very early structure on the plantation. Uh, we'd love to learn more about that structure and what that might have been. But then just slightly south of the Hopco House, southeast, but still on the bluff over Winyaw Bay, they found uh, at least one Native American settlement. And based on the pottery that they were able to excavate, they believe that site may date to around 2000 B.C., so wow. 4,000 years of occupation, over 4,000 years of occupation on this one small area overlooking Winyaw Bay. Now, have they... Gone, has, has Dr. Smith been able to go as far as say these were, we would say today, Winyaw, but the 17th century they called them weenies, uh, or sea, and then there were the seaweeds. Other than the fact that there were Native Americans there, they haven't been able to pin it down any further, or at, have they? At this point, and, and that's, that's part of what Dr. Smith is looking at, you know, what kind of lineage can we determine here? But at this point, it would predate the... Um, these tribes that we know of uh, and maybe a tribe that we we don't know of uh, that may not have any connection with the uh, even the tribes that the Spanish would have met when they first arrived. And some of those later tribes that we think of their names so often when the English first came and began to establish those trading posts that we mentioned, you know, we think of the Waccamaw tribe Mm. that took their name from the river they named first, Waccamaw, coming and going. The Winyaw tribe, um, the Bend, the people of the Bend became Winyaw, and certainly the PD tribe that did business up and down. You know, it's five rivers that flow into Winyaw Bay. And seaweeds don't. And the seaweed tribe just south of us with their great story, and especially as early Charlestown, um, Mm -hmm. before it was founded, coming in there at what we call Seaweed Bay, right? Well, let's tell the seaweed story. That's just too good to to pass up. The seaweeds had ocean-going canoes, dugouts, which... You don't usually think of that. You think of you know dugouts up the rivers, and maybe on the west coast you think about those Native Americans having seagoing vessels. They were very large, and the seaweeds 
kept saying, well, we're trading with these Europeans, and these ships are coming over the horizon, and there's a middleman that's making all this money. Why don't we just take our skins, our deer skin, that was the big thing, and go to the, to the market itself? And so they built the even larger ocean-going canoes and set sail due east, hoping to get to Europe, and never heard from again. And there was a big storm. It's been documented by a um, professor at the University of South Carolina who's done so much meteorological history. And um, the opportunity to know that there was a storm about that year that came up that would have set them off course. But had there not been a hurricane at sea, might they have made it? And I think the, just the idea of losing your strongest male tribe members, and it led to the um, breakdown of the Seaweed Tribe. Um, they never had as great a presence after that. That I believe it was 1700. Mm -hmm. And of course, about 1700 also, John Lawson in his new voyage to Carolina was writing about travel and transportation and describing the coast. And that's yet another book, New Voyage to Carolina, that exists for us to study and to understand the flora and the fauna of that particular time and place. John Lawson's work is important to our understanding of the Seaweed Tribe. And you mentioned that part of Bell Baruch's collection was one of the great Audubon illustrations. Did Audubon ever come to that particular area? I mean, some of the birds clearly were from that part of the coast, but... I think we would know it by now. I remember meeting Richard Rhodes as he spoke um, when his biography came out several years ago. He spoke at the... Um, Charleston County Library, and we heard him speak there so eloquently. And then it was a lot of fun also to have Dr. Patrick McMillan at Hopcall, who spoke so eloquently on two other pieces of artwork in Bell Baruch's collection that are, have remained in our possession, two Mark Catesby's. Mm -hmm. And of course, as we love to say, a hundred years before Audubon, Mark Catesby was here in our presence. Neither one do we know is exactly ad hoc cabarany, but as Jim Mickey said, maybe, maybe they were ad hoc call, and we just don't know it yet. <laughs> but Mark Catesby's art is in our collection at Hobcall House for the public to enjoy, and we're very fortunate, aren't we, now to know more and more about Mark Catesby and also John James Audubon. And of course, the Catesby Foundation has film, books, research. The Curious Mr. Catesby, the wonderful documentary. The Curious Mr. Catesby. Well, um, I think also it's interesting to speculate when you think about the age of a certain number of our trees and plants that are growing in the South Carolina low country to think that some of those specimens in the Catesby collection might have come off of trees that are still living and being observed today. Wouldn't that be an extra step to prove? That would, you mm -hmm. know. It's just, again, an interesting part of the, of the story. And the fact that, George, that at Hobcall, the natural environment is part of the history of the place. And that's what you study. It's, um, we haven't even gotten into some of the great stories about who came to Hobcall when Bernard Baruch was, was there. You mentioned, George, that uh, he had been part of the delegation Paris Peace Talks after World War after World After War One, he had he had first I guess his his first position, more or less an official position, uh, was during the Wilson administration during World War One, where he became chairman of the War Industries Board. Mr. Brooke and the War Industries Board were responsible for the determination of who built what for the war effort and where the raw materials went for manufacturing for supplies for the war effort. After that, President Wilson had invited him to, to be a, on the delegation to the Paris Peace Conference. And that's where he first met Winston Churchill uh, in person. They had corresponded during the war uh, because they had similar responsibilities uh, for the war effort for their countries in supplying the munitions and the, the facilities that were required for war. But he had first met him there at the Peace Conference and really struck up a friendship. They became friends. They would visit each other annually. Uh, Mr. Brute would visit Churchill when he was in England. But um, Churchill, at least on one occasion, did visit us and visit Mr. Brute at Hopka Barony. He was uh, out of government at the time. He was on a book tour of the United States, and Mr. Brute was sponsoring that book tour. He was one of the uh, sponsors for it. On that book tour, they were in New York. Um, 
Winston Churchill, the story goes, Winston Churchill was in a taxi cab going to meet Mr. Baruch for a, a, an evening meal, forgot the address for the New York apartment, and the cabbie could not find Mr. Baruch's apartment. So Churchill got frustrated, told the cabbie to stop, and stepped out of the cab, forgot that he was in New York, not in London, stepped out of the wrong side of the cab into traffic, and was hit by an oncoming car. Uh, Mr. Brooke had him taken to the hospital, paid for all his medical expenses while he was recovering. And then while he was recovering, uh, it's a little bit of debate as to where exactly he went. But we do know that he traveled with his, that Churchill traveled with his daughter Diana. And that uh, we believe they went to the Bahamas and then sailed back to the United States and actually came to Hopco. And uh, we have a great photograph in our collection of Bernard Baruch, uh, his daughter Belle, Winston Churchill and his daughter Diana on the dock out in front of Hopco House during Churchill's visit. And the date on that, approximately? It was the winter of 1932, um, end of January, early February. And it's been so easy to research Winston Churchill's travels because of his granddaughter, Celia Sands, who came and lectured at Hobcaw Barony and has accounted for all his days and all his travels in America, helped us understand exactly about that financial support, really underwriting the cost of those book tour tours, going cross-country, staying in hotels, liquor bills, dining bills. People think of, well, Churchill was, you know, descended from all sorts of great wealth and so forth and so on, but he did not have a lot of money. If you read recent biographies, particularly of his wife, Clementine, she despaired of the fact that, you know, he was he was writing for a living. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. uh, and he was out of politics yes. in the 30s. He was mm-hmm. on the wrong side of almost everything. Yes. Um, the wilderness years. Well, those were tough years for Winston Churchill. Um, you know, between the two world wars, he and Bernard Baruch were virtually the only two people talking about war preparation. They were the only two that were really talking about getting ready for another world war. And I think they were lone wolves. Um, I think that there was a lot of frustration among others. The Bernard Baruch had done so much about um, going to industry during World War One, as George mentioned, getting those factories turned over to building tanks and airplanes. Of course, you can imagine what happened when he went to Henry Ford and suggested that Henry Ford quit making cars. Well, Henry Ford was such an anti-Semite. He wasn't about to do what anything Bernard Baruch mentioned. But again, war mobility, but war preparation. And for Winston Churchill and Bernard Baruch to be the only two that got it, the only two that understood it, and there had to have been some source of uselessness that Winston Churchill felt. But also, um, that friendship continued until they died, both in 1965, if I remember correctly. Let's move now to your website that Betsy's working on. We are very fortunate that South Carolina Educational Television took interest in Hobcaw Barony. Betsy Newman came to us several years ago and created a one-hour documentary, The Baruchs of Hobcaw, and so many people have seen that, not just in South Carolina, but also over the border. But as Betsy Newman and her team said, they could do a mini-series, not just a one-hour documentary. And so Betsy applied for funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Humanities Council of South Carolina, and has been creating what we first called a virtual tour, which expanded to an interactive website, and today what we call a web documentary, betweenthewaters.org, a web documentary now available to listeners. And it is an, it is an amazing website that enables people to hear oral history interviews, to see art and science and history, to go into the rooms of the buildings at Hobcaw Barony and to experience them firsthand. Also, it's a major teaching tool. Um, We have an opportunity to share it with teachers and their students through that online opportunity. And Between the Waters is bringing us a whole new worldwide audience. We have been fortunate to have a partnership there with with a number of universities that have contributed to this project uh, through ETV and through Betsy's work to create this website. Um, We've even been able to establish a relationship uh, with Baruch College in New York, uh, named after Bernard Baruch, the free public school where Bernard Baruch went to college, graduated from there, and then at his death, left uh, the bulk of the remainder of his estate 
to um, to fund the business school there that's been renamed to Baruch College, and building that relationship with scholars from from New York to hear about the New York part of their life. Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Is there anything you'd like to say before we sign off today? And I'll start with Lee. I'd like to remind people that even though we are private property, we provide a great deal of public access. We offer um, a wide range of programs at hobcallbarony.org. You can find out about those programs. But there are a number of ways to see the property. It is not just a research facility for researchers and technicians. Instead, we do have a public opportunity to visit and learn about history and ecology. We're very accessible. Okay. George? Well, I think just to add to that, the other public benefits that the property provides, not just for public access, but the benefits that the public in the state of South Carolina receive by having this property conserved and conserved for research and education, whether it's the education we do with school kids through the K-12 through programming that we do, uh, right up through the cutting-edge research that's done by our colleges and universities provides a benefit to this state, both an economic benefit and a scientific benefit that uh, would not be possible if this property had not been conserved by Belle Baruch through her vision. George Chastain and Lee Brockington, both with Hobcar Barony and the Belle Baruch Foundation, I want to thank you today for being with us on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know I did. I've known Lee for years and George for a while. Hobcall Barony is one of my favorite places to visit when I'm on the coast. And it is not just an historical treasure and the stories associated with both Belle and her father and the property, but also the environmental resource that Hobcall Barony has become for the people of South Carolina. It's a private property, but it is open to the public. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.